I don't know if you noticed in the bulletin, and we also had a thing in the paper yesterday, a little article inviting you to come. And did you notice the typo or the misprint? And it's my fault. And you notice in the bulletin, the little thing about the teachers, a word is misspelled. Principle. I always get those wrong. And uh, English was not one of my better classes, and uh, I just didn't do no good in grammar. And... Uh, <laughs> Anyway, that was my bad. It wasn't Teresa's fault. In the 5th century, the once great Roman Empire was rotting from within from corruption and decadence and could not withstand the assault from the Germanic barbarians from the north. And it began a dark period in the history of the world. Some call it the Dark Ages. And for the next few centuries, chaos ruled Europe. Cities and cultural centers disappeared. Literacy, law, and order crumbled. Early medieval Europe seemed destined for complete barbarism as the Pillars of civilization were falling. But one force prevented the complete deterioration of culture, and that was the church, followers of Jesus. And instead of conforming to the barbarian culture, thousands of monastic orders spread across Europe, characterized by discipline, creativity, and moral order. Monks preserved classical literature, cleared land, drained swamps, built towns, and harvested crops. Bishops sheltered orphans, widows, paupers, and slaves. The church opened hospitals, constructed aqueducts, cut roads, organized schools, and the church was not perfect. Far from it, and a lot of people like to point that out. But eventually, the West emerged from the Dark Ages into a renewed period of cultural advancement, and much of the success of Western civilization can be grateful to a few Christians 1,200 years ago that determined to be salt and light. They rejected social norms and lived by a value system dictated by a higher ethic. Of course, more recently, civil rights, women's rights, workers' rights arose, all in a culture dominated by a Christian worldview. Now, some would say today we're in a new dark ages. The world appears to be more sophisticated, but only because today's barbarians wear polo shirts instead of animal skin and wield iPads instead of spears. We see moral decay, demise of family and marriage, the loss of the classics, and once again, we need followers of Christ to be outposts of truth and order. And teachers are on the front line of this cultural battle. Two of Jesus' most famous sayings are Matthew 5, 13 and 14. You are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. We are to be an influence in the world around us. And we're in a series on the Sermon on the Mount out of Matthew 5, 6 and 7 where Jesus talks about our role in the world and uh, my first question is, why does Jesus use these two particular metaphors of salt and light? Why not glue and glitter or sun and moon or baseball and apple pie or whatever? He probably chose salt because salt has always been valuable. In fact, in the Greeks' days, some considered salt to be divine. One legend says that Roman soldiers were paid with salt. And if you were a lousy soldier, you weren't worth your salt. And that's where that phrase comes from. Salt was used in parts of ancient societies as a sign of friendship. There were salt covenants. Sometimes at weddings today, the bride and groom would pour salt instead of lighting a candle. So salt was a very important commodity. And when Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, he could have been thinking of a variety of things, but he could have been saying simply, you are valuable to the world. The Romans had a saying that said, there is nothing more valuable than sun and salt. And now Jesus says, you are the light and the salt. You're valuable. Some say Jesus had purity in mind. Salt is white, and some feel that Jesus is emphasizing that, and the followers of Jesus are to be pure in heart, like Jesus talked in the Beatitudes. Another possibility, he's talking about flavor. Salt is used to season food. In fact, without salt, let's face it, 
Food is not worth eating without salt. You, you know if I ever have to go on a salt-free diet, I will probably choose to die instead. Salt-free is just wrong. I think it's in the Bible somewhere that you're supposed to have salt, and, you, and I'm sure it's in there anywhere. It should be. So maybe Jesus is saying, you're the flavor of the world. The world is tasteless and dull and drab and lifeless and unsavory. You are what salts life. Another option, salt can sting. It has a medicinal and a healing property when put into a wound, and when you do that, it stings. And so some say the Lord is saying believers are not to be honey to soothe the world, rather we are to be salt to heal the world, and that healing can have a sting. And sometimes when we stand for something as a church, some people won't like it. The gospel um, isn't always accepted by everyone. It can be offensive. And too often Christians, I think we want to be honey all the time, and because of that we never take a stand, and we don't want anybody to get upset, we want everyone to say, those Christians, they're so loving and tolerant, and they don't upset anyone, and they don't want to get anyone angry. No, we're not honey. We're salt. And sometimes um, what we stand for can sting. And sometimes teachers have to do things that sting. They have to work with students that need a little discipline, maybe like these guys up here. <coughs> This is the real reason we're praying for teachers today. We know some of the kids that teachers have to deal with, and as a church, we're trying to reform these boys. And of course, I'm just kidding, because these three guys are great. Their dad needs a little help, but they're okay. <laughs> salt can sting. Some writers say that salt's primary purpose is to create thirst, a desire that needs quenching. The gospel is attractive because of how it shapes and molds people, and Christians should be attractive. And sometimes people will say to you, you know, there's something different about you. I mean, how can you forgive that person? Or how can you have so much peace in that situation? And, and where's all that contentment? Or they might say, you know, you've changed since you started going to church. If we live salty lives, we can create a thirst. But I think the key reason that we are called salt is salt was and is a preservative. In a day without refrigeration, the only way they could preserve meat was to salt it, and they would literally rub the salt in. So this is a negative function in a way. We're here to prevent decay, prevent corruption. We're to be a, kind of an antiseptic in the world. And then the other metaphor is light, where Jesus says, Let your light shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. John 1.9 says, Christ is the light that gives light to everyone. So he is the ultimate source of light, and then we are to be reflectors of the light. He's the sun, and we're the moons, and so we are to reflect him. So when I tell you to go out and moon someone this week, you know what I mean. Uh, that was pretty funny, I thought. Anyway, salt is a preservative. Keep food from spoiling. Light is to illuminate. And that's really our effect in the world, our twofold effect. Uh, teachers and students, you are to have an effect in the world to keep society from decaying and to bring the light of Christ to this world. One commentator said salt is the uh, social action, caring for the poor, caring for the sick, you know, community involvement, things like that. Light is the evangelism part, sharing Christ that brings eternal life. And of course, we are to do both of those. Whatever they speak of, both metaphors are all about influence and making a difference. Where would America today be without the Christian influence? Would there even be in America? 
Our founding fathers founded this nation on principles found in Scripture. Almost every major higher institution of learning in the United States was founded by Christians, including Yale and Harvard and Princeton and I think all of the light Ivy League schools. The majority of schools that are in existence today were founded by Christians. Hospitals, orphanages, adoption and foster care being done largely by Christians. And once again, the church can be an outpost of truth and order. Now, there's some implications for this, for us. And one implication is what Jesus thinks about the world. And the implication is that the world is decayed and dark. It's decayed, that's why it needs salt. It's dark, that's why it needs light. And no matter how much people around us and people in our world try to talk about how enlightened we are and how things are evolving and we're getting better, the truth is we're blind to what's really going on. We're in the process of deterioration. Read Romans 1. It's very clear it isn't getting better. And it's just ridiculous, really, to think otherwise. It can't get better because it's not good to start with and it's getting worse. Let me give you one example. There's a spin on the decline of marriage that some are trying to put out there that, well, humanity is evolving to a higher level and marriage is something kind of from the past and it's something that men and women only need at lower levels of the evolutionary process. And so humanity is evolving to a higher level of living, and that's caused marriage to deteriorate, and that's progress. That's okay. So the deterioration of a core institution that has been basic since the beginning of humanity is actually a sign of progress. We may want to rethink that. I think teachers would know probably more than anyone that when a family is bad and a marriage is bad, kids suffer, schools suffer. The community suffers. Everyone suffers. That is not progress. You know, what I'm waiting for now is the next thing we'll hear is that shooting a policeman is a sign of the evolving humanity. We're getting better. It's just ridiculous. The world of Jesus' time had decay and darkness, and all we've done is increase the volume. We've turned it up louder and invented new ways to do it, and that's what Jesus implies here. The world is decayed and dark. But that's really not his main teaching or concern here. It's really not about the world. His main concern is that the salt and light can be neutralized and both can be rendered ineffective. You are the salt of the earth, speaking to you believers. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So salt can lose its saltiness and light can be hidden. Now, at first reading, Jesus apparently was not a chemist. Pure salt, I'm told, cannot lose its saltiness. I mean, sodium chloride, is that what salt is? My worst grade was in chemistry. Second worst was in grammar. But anyway, and understand salt cannot be broken down. So salt cannot become unsalty. Salt is salt, period. But back then, very often there was a mixture of a white substance with salt. And when the salt was washed out, it would leave that white substance that looked like salt, but it wasn't. So you can look salty, but not be salty. And light, of course, can be neutralized by simply getting it out of sight. And the danger that Jesus is concerned about is Christians becoming bland, compromising with the world, losing our saltiness, or withdrawing from the world and hiding our light. 
See, he says, you are the salt and you are the light. Like it or not, you are, if you're a follower of Jesus. The only question is, have you lost your salty flavor or are you hiding your light? Are you having any godly influence? One show we watch once in a while is CSI. And in one episode, one of the detectives says, you cannot leave a room without leaving something behind. You cannot enter a room and not take something with you. You will leave your mark just by being there. And I would say in the same way, you will not leave earth without leaving something behind. Just by being here, you will leave your mark. The question is, will it be salt and light? Let me suggest two imperatives if we are to be salt and light for all of us, if you're a teacher or if you're in business or if you're a student or if you're in the workforce. If we are to be salt and light, the first thing, I want to just go back to the whole Sermon on the Mount as a whole, what it's talking about. We must have a character that is not of this world. This whole sermon is basically about living a different level, living the Jesus life. Our influence depends on our distinctiveness, our distinctive commitment to Christ and His character. And the danger is Christians compromising, becoming bland like everyone else around us. Same values, same goals, same lifestyles, same attitudes, same uh, uh, spend money the same way, have the same attitude towards money, time used in the same way. And you know what's so sad about that is that instead of the church influencing the world and being salt, the world actually influences the church and we become compromised. Jesus you be different all through this sermon. Philippians 2, Paul says, You should be blameless, harmless children of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding forth the word of life. We can't be light if we're living in the darkness like everyone else. All through this sermon, recurring phrase, do not be like them. Repeat that after me. Do not be like them. You be different. You're holy. You're set apart. Don't give in to that tendency to conform to the prevailing culture and become like the world. And if the church becomes polluted by these impurities, we're done. If we love money like everyone else, we're not going to be salt and light. And Jesus will talk about that later in the sermon. If we seek pleasure for self and above all else, like everyone else, we're not salt or light. If we have the same attitude towards drinking and partying like everyone else, how can we be salt and light to the kids? Even if family is the most important thing in your life, you put family first, you won't be salt and light. In fact, I would contend any of these others, when any of them become more important than Christ, the deterioration sets in. Now, money, entertainment, family, they're not bad, they're good but they can become idols. And the most profound way we are to be salt and light is to just be different. By living both a life of both grace and truth, His Word is our guide and His grace in our demeanor. So the first imperative, character, not of this world. The second imperative is kind of the flip side of the coin. We are to be different from the world, but we are also to have a relationship to this world. Salt, in order to be effective, has to be gotten out of the salt shaker and rubbed into the meat, mingled with the substance it's affecting. Light, in order to dispel the darkness, has to shine upon the darkness. So we're to spread the message of good news, the salvation, not just sit around and talk to each other about it, you know. Your fellowship within the church is wonderful and it's rich and everyone needs it and we need to be together once in a while. But sooner or later, we have to be light in the world and salt of the earth and get out from being wrapped up in ourselves. 
There was a monastic community, I think Jesus was possibly referring to here, called the Essenes, E-S-S-E-N-E-S, and they withdrew from the wicked world, and they called themselves, get this, sons of light. But they would hide in their community and take no steps to let that light shine in the world. It is impossible to live the Jesus life privately. When people say, well, my faith is a private faith, that is not what Jesus had in mind. That's not salt and light. And one of our goals as a church is more community involvement, more reaching out, uh, getting involved in the schools, uh, not hiding the light of Christ, you know, being a part of this community, being good neighbors, taking meals to people, just acts of goodness, just little acts of salt and light here and there. Both of these metaphors are saying, get out of the shaker, get out from under the bushel. And he's telling us, don't hide, get into the world with that distinctive character. I want to tell you an incident you won't believe. It happened last week when the lights went out in Mount Pulaski, which is a shocker that it happened. And I went to the closet to find some candles and found four. And I lit all four of them. And it's amazing how they lit up that little closet. And I thought, this is great. So I said to the candles, it was a strange night, so I start talking to candles. Anyway, and I said, uh, boy, am I glad I found you four. To the first one said, no, I'm going to put you on the table so we can eat. And to the second, I said, now, you can go into the laundry room so Ellen can do her work there. And I put another one in the kitchen so Ellen can do her work there. Not thinking that we don't have any electricity, anyway. But, uh, and then the fourth big candle was going to be in the living room so I could sit and read while Ellen was doing all her work. And I felt a little bit foolish talking to these candles, but it was a strange night, anyway. And I was getting ready to leave with the large candle in my hand, and I heard a voice. It said, hold it right there. I said, who said that? And again, the voice said, hold it there. Don't take me out of here. What? I told you you wouldn't believe this. That voice said, don't take me out of the closet. And I said, what do you mean? I have to take you out. You're a candle. And your job is to give light. And it's dark out there. And people are stubbing their toes and running into walls. And you have to come out and light up the place. And this candle said, but you can't take me out. I'm not ready. I need more preparation. More preparation? I couldn't believe my ears, and I couldn't believe I was actually talking to a candle, but this candle said, I've decided I need to research this job of light giving so I won't go out and make a bunch of mistakes. You'd be surprised how distorted the glow of an untrained candle can be. So I'm studying things like wind resistance and wick buildup, and I just finished reading a book entitled Waxing Eloquently. I'll let my light shine eventually. I'm just not ready. I couldn't believe it. Isn't it your job to be light? So I said, well, you're not the only candle on the shelf. I'll blow you out and take some others. So I just, I just I got ready to blow him out. I heard some other voices. We're not going either. It was a conspiracy. And I said, now listen, you're candles, and it's your job to light dark places. And I was getting a little miffed. And one candle said, well, that's what you think. I'm busy. Busy? Yeah, I'm meditating. A candle that meditates? Yeah, I'm meditating on the importance of light. It's really enlightening. Another said, we're, we're having good fellowship in here, so we're just going to stay. So I decided to reason with them, and I said, now listen, I appreciate what you're doing. I'm all for this study and meditation and fellowship, but you've been in here for months. Haven't you had enough time to get your wick on straight and get your light right? Well, the third candle spoke up, said, well, I'm waiting to get my life together. I, I lose my temper easily. I guess you could say I'm a hothead. And then the last candle was female. And she said, I'd like to help, but lighting the darkness isn't my gift. 
Not your gift. What do you mean? She said, well, I'm a singer, and I sing to the other candles to encourage them to burn more brightly. And then she began a rendition of this little light of mine. And she was pretty good. And the others joined in singing, filling this closet with music. And, and I'm in this closet with all this light and singing. And finally, I shouted above the music, hey, I don't mind if you sing while you work. In fact, we could use a little music out there in the dark. But they didn't hear me. Four perfectly good candles singing to each other about light, but refusing to come out of the closet. I thought, are Christians the only ones that won't come out of the closet these days? Well, I didn't know what to do, so I started blowing them out one by one. They kept singing to the end, and the last one to flicker was the female singer, and I snuffed her out right at the part where she said, won't let Satan me out. But I did. Closed the door, went back on the darkness, bumped my knee, and I asked Ellen, where'd you get those candles? Oh, she said, remember the church that closed last year? Salt has no business staying in a salt shaker. When meat rots, you don't blame the meat. That's what meat does. When the meat rots, you ask, where's the preservative? When society rots, you don't blame society. It's just natural. You ask, where's the salt? Where's the light? Get involved in the community. Get involved in business and politics and the schools and the nursing home. You know, make friends, build relationships. Be different and be involved. The two imperatives to be salt and light. You say, well, I'm only one person. Well, just one teacher. Just one parent, maybe just one family. The whole community can see one teacher being salt and light. And Some of you teachers are just that. One Christian nurse in the hospital, one Christian worker in the shop or in a factory or an office, one student at school. The world will see your good deeds. And they'll give glory to your Father in heaven. Your salt, your light, you be different, get involved. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for coming into this world and getting involved and penetrating this world to bring salt and light into it. And just as you came into this world, you have sent us into this world to be salt and light. And Lord, I pray you'll give us wisdom in knowing what it means to be different. I pray you'll give us boldness because sometimes it's, it's scary. I pray, Lord, that your word would be our guide. And today especially, we want to lift up our teachers and our schools and thank you for the ministry you've given to them. Uh, lead and guide them as they are your ambassadors to our students and to our community. And we pray for this school year that it will be one where lives are changed, minds are challenged, and you are given the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. As we continue to worship together this morning in response to the word that we have just heard, will you please stand with us as we sing together? Never fail. Let mercy fall. 
is a wonderful thing, and I think I'm going to switch mics really quick before I keep going on. Prayer is a great thing. I, I love it, and I'm sure most of you guys can relate to that too. And this week's a, a special week um, for students. It's the National Week of Prayer. See you at the polls on Wednesday. So it's a big deal. And as I was thinking about what I'm going to talk about tonight, and as I, was, I was thinking about what I was going to talk about this morning, I started to think about how we end our prayers. You know, we always close with that, in Jesus' name, amen. We ask these things in Jesus' name. What, what, however you do it, we pray things in Jesus' name. And for those of you that are maybe are a little new to this, or maybe some of you that just need a little recap, why, why do we do that? Well, we do that 
because it is only through Jesus that we can come to God. And that's something that we recognize through communion, that it's only through Jesus that we have salvation. It's only through Jesus that we can come to the Lord of the universe. And so, what I want to encourage you with this morning, as we partake of communion, remember that you have a Savior who came and lived and died for you so that you can have a relationship with God. And that's what we celebrate through communion, and that's what we celebrate when we're here in this place. So will you all pray with me? Father God, we thank you for your son. We thank you for this church, and we thank you for the opportunity we have to come together. And God, we thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus. We thank you for the life that he lived and the life that he willingly gave up so that we can be with you. And Father, we pray all these things in his name, knowing that you will hear us. Amen.